Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Sherrill. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. Well, man, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you, um, just as I said, I hope you felt right at home. I hope that when you leave this place that you will know that you have stepped into a place that you might not exactly put words to it, but you would say, man, there was something tangibly different there. And let me tell you what that is. We pray every week that before you step in the room, before we step in the room, that someone steps in the room first. And we believe that's the presence of the Lord. Amen? And I really pray that because I know this. Listen, there's, there's not just the right song or just the right sermon to move your heart. There's just not unless it's empowered by the presence of Jesus. And so this morning, man, more than songs and sermons, we just want the Spirit of God to be welcome here. Because I know that we can educate you and teach you a lot of really great things, and it's going to help. But I don't want it just to be the seven habits of highly effective Christians. I don't want it to find itself on the self-help section of Barnes & Noble, right? My prayer is that, that you don't just get educated, but that you encounter God. You experience Jesus in a way that changes your life, which is why we're doing a series about Jesus called The Great I Am. I'm really excited about this series. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to begin this morning with a couple of questions. Number one, who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? Was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Was he just a good and moral guy? Um, was he real? Is he real? Was he normal? Was he just a man or was he God? Was he truly great? Was he truly great? Today, as we begin this journey that's going to take us all the way through Easter, we're going to focus on the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus, who he is. In this series that we call Great I Am, we're going to be looking at seven statements that are called the I Am Statements in the book of John. And while we're going to be all through Scripture, we are going to concentrate most of our effort and energy into the book of John. Okay, so speaking of being in the scripture, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you. We always have some free ones right back there in the back on that table where the balloons are. We would love for that to be a gift for you. So you can even get up and go grab one now if you want to follow along. We're going to try to have words on the screen, but our computers are acting a little weird. So we'll try to have the scriptures there for you. Um, we'll get there, hopefully. So you may want to grab one of those uh, physical copies. I know in this day and age, it's really weird to have a physical book of anything, right? It's kind of like CDs. That's why my music career is over. Because nobody buys music. Anyway, try to tell the literary world it's coming. Apple's coming for you. It's coming for you. All right. So let's dive in. little historical background. So somewhere between AD 85 and AD 90 in the city of Ephesus, the Gospel of John was written. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is widely believed that the Apostle John is the author because of the many scriptural references supporting that very claim. Unlike the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel of John is distinctly different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as, or as often referred to as what's called the synoptic Gospels. And the word synoptic means same, or, I like this better, to see with the same eye. So in other words, there's a lot of repetition found throughout the three Gospel accounts before you get to John. In fact, there's Bible commentators that suggest that there's a 75% chance that you're going to see the account of the same incident throughout each of the Synoptic Gospels. It's like you lay them on top of one another. Though they come from different people's perspective, there's a 75% chance that you're going to see those same stories and parables play out. 
But when you get to comparing these synoptic gospels to the book of John, you'll find that only about 25% of these accounts are gonna be retold. And if they are retold, mostly they're gonna be so much more detail and it's gonna be in a different way. Also making John's gospel distinctly different. John does not include Jesus' genealogy, his birth, his baptism, the temptation story. In the book of John, we do not see him casting out demons. We do not see the parables or the transfiguration. Like in the synoptic gospels, we do not see Jesus even institute the Eucharist or some call communion or the Lord's Supper. We do not see the agony in Gethsemane. Matthew 26 is one of my favorite passages. I say that all the time. I've got a lot of favorites. But we don't see it in the book of John. And we also do not see the ascension. John's presentation of Jesus stresses his ministry in Jerusalem, the feast of the Jewish nation, Jesus' contacts with individuals throughout private conversations rather than parables, and his ministry to the disciples. Another favorite passage is John 17. I don't think we're going to get to it during this series, but it is a very amazing uh, part of the text. The Gospel of John seems more intimate in nature. Why is this? Could it be because of the intimate friendship between Jesus and John? I don't know. Um, one could not assume that. Um, John the Beloved. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but I do know that one thing is for certain. Instead of the parables and teachings that we typically would read throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see John take on a very different tone, which is more conversational. It's more... Um, relational, relationship-driven, and it's more intimate. So when comparing all of these Gospels, um, all describing Jesus from different angles, Matthew's narrative was mainly written by a Jew for the Jew and about a Jewish Messiah. Mark, last week, uh, our own very, very own Mark Cornelson, um, you know, in fact, we've got, a, we've got a Matthew, we've got a Mark, and we've got a John. We need Luke. Anybody? Bueller? Bieber? Whatever your generation is? Okay. We need a Luke. So Mark, um, you know, he, he, was, he, he was very to the point. It's much, it's, it's, it's much shorter, very succinct. He, Mark directed his message to those more of a Roman mindset, while the Greek physician Luke, he wrote in a linguistic style appealing to people of a Greek origin. So each had nuance towards a certain audience, but told many of the same stories driven to a point. Though there's chronological differences throughout the Synoptic Gospels, all three narratives shared many of the miracles of Jesus, many of the sermons, the teaching, and the parables. But John, John, however, he comes on the scene declaring explicitly about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the begotten of the living God. And unlike the other Gospels, rather than focusing on a specific ethnic or geographical group, John's audience opens up for all mankind, for everybody, Jew and Gentile. The Gospel of John has long been regarded by biblical scholars as the most theological of all four narratives. In fact, theologian John Calvin once said, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, exhibit Christ's body, but John exhibits Christ's soul. John's Gospel records Jesus' self-revelation, namely, Jesus declaring that he is indeed the Christ, that he is God. His narrative can be divided into two main sections, which are sometimes uh, called, number one, the book of signs. We see this in chapters 1 through 12. And in these, John describes seven miracles or signs which proclaim Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. The book of signs also contains 
these great discourses of Jesus, which explain and proclaim, they declare the significance of each of these signs, the very first being the wedding of Cana. This is a manifesto of sorts where Jesus points to his own identity. Then you get into chapter 13 through 21. This section is often called the book of glory. This is where Christ reveals his fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if anybody could really put great definition and unpack the truth of how the Trinity operates, man, that would be a person to listen to. That is, a, that is such a far and wide mind-bending thing to try to explain the Trinity. But this book, in the book of glory, Jesus begins to talk about his relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Overall, John's purpose is clear, to declare the greatness of Jesus by recording these signs so that, that readers would come behind and believe him. So if there's one takeaway, I'm going to come back to it, but if there's one takeaway from the entirety gospel of John, it's this. John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name, by the power of his name. A lot of people don't read that part, or they just skip through it. By the power of his name, his name, Jesus. What a beautiful name. I've said it before, and I'll say it a thousand more times. It's the only name that speaks both power and peace at the same time. You could be in the middle of your very own personal dark night of the soul you would label as hell. And you hear the word Jesus, the name of Jesus, and it just calms the entirety of your being. Likewise, you could be in a moment when you know you need that dunamis-type power. And the name Jesus will bring so much encouragement for you to step in faith and take one more step and one more breath. Jesus. This morning, we're going to be, begin with the first 18 verses of John's gospel. It's also called the prologue. So let's read here together. I'm just going to read down real quick. In the beginning was the word, John 1, 1 through 18. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're speaking of John, another John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world, has made, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This John guy, he bore witness about him and he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So let's break this down just a bit and look at it closely. Number one. In the beginning was the word, Lagos. 
And the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning, before all things, we've, we've spoken on this just a little bit. But in this beginning, first of all, let's just, let's just look at that and what it, what it says is really this, in beginning. In beginning, if I'm going to begin a story in beginning, let me start here, right? It's not that in the beginning when God was created, God has always been. He is transcendent. He is uncreated. That's why sometimes when there's chaos around you, you just need to say, Father, silence creation. I only want to hear from the uncreated because he's eternal, And it's hard to wrap our minds around that. That's where faith comes in. Man, if you need reason and logic, you're going to struggle with this. Because he has just always been. He is eternal forever, and he will always be. So in beginning, and I often define time as not minutes, seconds, hours, years, days. I define time literally... If I, if I were to look through God's perspective, is how do we measure the movement of God? Some people even take that to, a, I think, a dangerous place, and they want to measure the moves of God and just contain him in certain seasons, and they call it dispensationalism. I'm not a fan, because some of those same people try to emasculate and take away the power of God and say, he only did that then, but he can't do that now, or he doesn't do that now. That is dangerous stuff. Church, just so you know from your pastor's point of view, if I, when I stand before God, I would rather have, I would rather hear him or me, let me back up, that was rewind. When I stand before God, I would rather have to say, I'm sorry that I described you in a way that you weren't, rather than say, I'm sorry for teaching generations of people unbelief. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many degrees you have hanging on the wall. If you want to go toe-to-toe with the God of all creation who has was and is and is to come and try to say, but God, systematically, this is how I figured you out. Good luck with that. That's just from me to you. And if that is not where you stand, I'm sorry, humbly I say, this is just the way that we're going to go because I believe in the great I am. And I needed the great I am more times than I could count in my life to step into my situation and be the great I am and bring healings that some people told me he couldn't do anymore. And I watched him do it. And I need that. Listen, if God is not God any longer, and if he can't be God and doesn't have his authority and his power to be God, then what are we doing here? The reason why I'm here is not because I've got all my stuff together. I am jacked up, (laughs) y'all. Ask her. I'm here because I need God. I need the great I am. I need a God of greatness. I know what I'm capable of. I've seen the depths of my depravity. I've tasted the sickness of my sin. And I need God. And I need him to be great. So in beginning, the way we measure how God is moving and the the way that we measure our story with God, before all things, we see him present. He's active. And it says he was in the beginning with God, verse 2. This speaks to Jesus also being present and active with God. In the beginning, or better said, in beginning, this brings us to our first point. Here we see that Jesus is the eternal word. It says in the word was with God, and the word was God. Even, we're even using that, name, that word word as a name of Jesus. He was there. We see that Jesus is the eternal word. He existed in the beginning, not because he had a beginning as a creature, but because he's eternal. He's uncreated. He's transcendent. He is God, and he was with God. In fact, John 8, 58 says this, before Abraham was, I am. 
Jesus is the eternal word. Not only is Jesus the eternal word, but Jesus is the creative word. John 1 parallels with Genesis 1 in these first few verses. In Genesis 1, we see the creation story. I've often said, if we don't get that story a little bit straight, we're in trouble for the rest of it. But God spoke a word and created. He spoke a word and created something. This is why creativity, I believe, is so important. The arts are important. We have to redeem the arts back to the glory of God. Why? Because one of the very first things that we see God do is what? Create. There's no reason why we should allow the enemy to get more glory out of art and music and things of the arts, drama and all these things, than our Father God. Arts are important. They point to one of the first and foundational truths of the character of God, and that's creation. It's one reason why we have art worship. We, I, I made Brent move from back there to up here. So you might be feeling a little lonely up here. He may need some people to come up here and just worship with him through this that he's doing. God is all about creation. Art. Why do I say this? Ephesians 2.10, we're his masterpiece. Our lives are the canvas in which God paints his self-portrait. We are created in the image of God according to Genesis 1.27. We are created in his image. Colossians 1.15-17, another one of my favorites. It speaks to this. It says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. If you go back to John 1.18, I didn't think about this, so it's not in my notes, but that's exactly what this is saying. No one has seen God, but they see Jesus. And that's seeing God. Christ is the image. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything and, and created. I'm sorry. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the, the things that we can see. He made the things that we can't see. He made thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Can I tell you this? The kings will bow to the king of kings. The kings of this earth will bow to the king of kings. If you're worried about the election and the president and the first 100 days, that doesn't matter. Presidents will bow to the king of kings. Don't stress yourself. He's got this. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, 17 says, and he holds all creation together. He's got this. He's got it. Jesus is the creative word. So back to that parallel with Genesis 1 and John 1. The narrative of each appear to begin the same. Look at Genesis 1. Look at John 1. Look at those first two verses, really. They begin to appear the same, but then all of a sudden, the two books go off in totally different directions, right? There's like something that takes place in Genesis 1 that, that actually, John, it's a little different. I want to point it out. So in the beginning, before time, before space, before anything, in beginning, the uncreated transcendent one was present and active. God, Jesus is there. The Spirit's also present, hovering over the deep, if you look at Genesis 1. Even in what could, listen, even in what could be defined as our void was yet still his fullness. That was good, somebody. God the Father present, God the Son present, begotten, uncreated, God the Spirit present, then creation, all things created in him, by him, through him, for him. He does this through his word, Lago speaking. Here we see words creating worlds, and that is power. Can I tell you something? There is so much power in the spoken word. 
There's so much power in the spoken word. The omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent knows. The one who is not omniscient does not know. He is not all-knowing. He is your adversary, the enemy. I am not making a case for the word of faith movement, but I am making a case for you better watch out the curses that you speak over yourself and other people because that's the only way he can find out your enemy. Words are powerful, and we see this as God speaks the word and creates stuff. But, well, before we go there, Genesis 1, all things good, kingdom. Remember a few weeks back, we talked about it, Eden, perfection. Then Genesis 3, the very good humanity that God created, the first Adam, rebels, does not want to obey. So by chapter 3 of Genesis 1, the story takes a very tragic turn of events twist. Mankind breaks creation. Everything is headed towards destruction. The next 10 or so chapters, things get worse and worse. We see everything begin to go off the rails. Family, marriage. I mean, you see men taking on many wives. You see brothers considering and committing murder, killing each other. John's narrative, however, in the beginning, takes a different approach. It starts looking the same. He begins in the same place, but quickly introduces the second Adam. The first Adam, flesh created by God, destroys everything it touches. But the second Adam, Jesus, comes in to deliver all things that humanity destroyed. Mankind wrecked creation through the first Adam. The second Adam comes to redeem it in the book of John. In every way, the first Adam in Israel was failure. But Jesus, the second Adam, came to fix it. So when we read John 1, we read it like this. Jesus is the eternal word. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word, Jesus, was with God. And the word, Jesus, was God. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Not only is he the eternal word, but Jesus is the creative word. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus, nothing would have been created. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The life, Jesus, was the light. This is what would fulfill and satisfy the grave, tragic human condition of desperate need. This is what would overcome the darkness and the sin. This is hope that would shine on the separation and point to the truth of the need of Jesus. This is what would illuminate the truth of forgiveness and freedom, restoration and redemption. The darkness representing evil and the enemy, the adversary, cannot overcome the light. Verse 6. There was a mint. Come on, that's good, Tim Bean. I like it. That's the kind of church we are. I like that. (laughs) There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Speaking of John the Baptist. John comes as a witness to bear a witness about the light that all might believe through him. His purpose was just to declare Jesus, to declare truth, to prepare the way for him to come. And verse 8 says that he, John, was not the light. But he only came to bear witness about the light. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The purpose of Jesus was to be life and light to all and for all. This was big. This was a promise being fulfilled. What a tragic event verse 10 introduces. Look what it says. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Prophecy? For years, even his very own people. That's not the way I thought he was coming. Can't be him. How many religious churchgoers in the year 2017 sit with their arms crossed, bored out of their gourd, going, that's not the way God works. 
I don't like that song. There's none left Chris Tomlin up in here, y'all. Everybody knows it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, Chris Tomlin. I mean, I'm just playing. <laughs> calm down, calm down. I like me some Tomlin. Like he's got a really good song called Jesus. We need to do that one. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him years ago. When I was coming up, I was a wee little lad. No, really, I was short, very short. And um, I liked music. And there was this dude, this is going to prove my age right here. There was this guy named Wayne Watson. Anybody? Come on, somebody. My sister over here is testifying, yes, Lord. Watercolor ponies gets me every time, y'all. I got them pictures on my, on my fridge, crying. There were watercolors. <laughs> Bring them back, Lord. I just watched Toy Story 3, and now I'm depressed. My kids left. All right. Yeah, I know. It's like 1126. There's a song that Wayne Watson did called What I Know You Now. And it was like one of my favorite songs growing up. Let me read the lyric. Would I know you now if you walked into the room? If you stilled the crowd, if your light dispelled the gloom, and if I saw your wounds and touched your thorn-pierced brow, I wonder if I'd know you now. Would I know you now if you walked into this place? Would I cause you shame? Would my games be your disgrace? Or would I worship you and fall down on my face? I wonder if I'd know you now. And he goes on to say this, listen. Or have the images I painted so discarded the truth of who you are that even if the world was looking, they could not even see you, the real you. Have I changed the true reflection to fulfill my own design, making you what I want, not showing you forth divine? He says, would I miss you now if you left and closed the door? Would my flesh cry out, I don't need you anymore? Or would I follow you? Could I be restored? I wonder if I'll ever learn. I wonder if I would know you now. I can't tell you how many times I've grieved in the spirit as I've led worship for churches or stood in front of churches and, and I've listened to them talk more about their business meetings and their budgets and I've talked about the broken becoming restored. And I wonder if Jesus Christ walked into the room in the flesh, how many would recognize him? Hey, I pray it for our own church. Lord, never let it, never let it be that if you walked into the room in the physical flesh, I pray that we would all simply recognize him. And guess what? At that point, it don't matter if it's 1127, y'all. Diapers will be changed. The buses will wait, right? Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him in 12, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become children of God, who gave them the right, this gift to become a child of God. He changed their whole identity. Hey man, who's, who's sick of you? Are you sick of being you? Are you tired of looking in the mirror, wonder why there's more dysfunction to disease than there is deliverance? Are you living out of a poverty spirit? Has some religious zealot told you that poverty equals humility? Or are you waiting for God to bless you because his hand can give you a Lexus or a Mercedes? Meanwhile, you're living like total hell. But you go on Sunday and you punch the card, and so by, by sure, sure by now, it has, listen, it's, it's, it's all him. It's all about him. 
It's about his glory, his presence. It's a gift that he gives us to change our identity, to give us purpose, that we can encounter his presence and have hope and joy and freedom. I mean, it is a gift. And we act as if we're American consumer capitalists entitled all the time. Like, instead of us being created in him as his image, we try to create him in ours. I mean, we're good at declaring that he is a white Republican. But the truth be known, he If you walked into the room, I I pray that all stereotypes would just be done. They'd be gone. All of our cliques and our judgments and our circles and the sin and the stuff that we bow our lives to that are of lesser glory. Come on, somebody. Verse 13. Let me start in 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is something that your parents can't do. This is something that you can't will for yourself. It's all God done. It's all God initiated. It's all God drawing and choosing and and calling and, and Jesus because of Jesus. It's all him. It's all him. This is the separating factor. It's not of the blood or the will of anyone or anything, but God himself, it's nothing you can do. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't be good morally enough. You can't vote the right way enough. You can't, it's all him. 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Incarnation, he tabernacled with us is what that means. So here, not only is Jesus the eternal word and the creative word, Jesus is the incarnate word. God becomes tangible. God becomes physical. God becomes one of us. He leaves heaven for humility. He leaves glory to walk amongst his creation. God with us, Emmanuel. God experiencing everything that we experience. He says, and we have seen, we have beheld. I love that language. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To begin to understand the gravity of this verse, we have to embrace Israel's issue. God's glory had left Jerusalem in Ezekiel. We see the vision. The Israelites, they had gone into exile. They rebelled against God, though God had pled with them to repent. Chapter 11, you see this time that comes when God's glory leaves over the east, lifts off from the temple and takes off over the east gate. Then, then they there was the sense that the glory of God had left. But good news, Ezekiel 43, another vision. He has this amazing vision that God's glory would come back in a cloud of light that comes from the east and would re-inhabit the temple that came with a promise when it would happen that his glory would never leave again. This was the hope that Israel had. Even though they had physically returned from exile, no one had ever claimed to have a vision that the glory had actually come back to the temple. No one had claimed to see the glory come back. The promise had not yet been fulfilled until now, until here, John 1.14, God's promise was fulfilled with the incarnation. This was the moment. We are seeing his glory, the glory of his presence. We, are, we have the capacity because of him to behold his glory. God's glory has come just as prophesied in the person of Jesus. And the glory of God, listen, would never leave again. Never. 
It was unexpected. It's not the way they imagined it would happen. They were looking for the physical temple, but the incarnation, it wasn't just about Israel. Listen, what God promised to do for Israel wasn't going to be just Israel, but also for the entirety of the world. John 15, John bore witness about him and cries out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He has always been. He has always been, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Because of Jesus incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, because of the plan and purposes of God for Jesus and for us. The riches of God at the expense of Jesus would be lavished upon our lives. Jesus would become our instant access to God. Jesus would become the the ability for us to behold the glory of God, to be in the presence of God. 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law of sin and death. All it did was expose our need. Listen to this. The law could not fix our failure because it's dependent upon something the flesh could never fulfill. Let me say that again. The law of sin and death, the Mosaic law, it can never truly fix our failure because it's completely dependent upon something the flesh cannot physically fulfill. But Jesus, grace, God's undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor, and then truth, the fact that we have made a wreck of the world and God is justly angry that we have made a wreck of it. And just like the last series, obviously it needs a reset. Enter the incarnation, Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made him known. No one has seen God, but we've seen Jesus. This is why it's so important, church. I don't want you to just educate yourself. This is why I say it. I want you to experience it. I want you to encounter him. My prayer and hope week after week is that together, that's what happens. We experience Jesus. Why? So you can see the tangible presence and love of God moving in your life. That's what's going to change you. That's what's going to give you hope. That's what's going to bring salvation to you and your family. That's what's going to break the generational curses of the words that have been spoken over your life. That's what's going to bring freedom. Interesting to note in Ezekiel, there's so much to be said about the temple where the glory of God dwells. The temple is a place where heaven and earth would collide. Do you see it? The glory of God isn't about a location any longer. It's about a person. And when Jesus spoke of the temple being torn down and rebuilt in three days, he was speaking of his person, his body. So where does the glory of God dwell now, church? Where does it dwell now? In us. The great I am wants to tabernacle with us. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17. Look what it says. Maybe. Um, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? Next. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you are the temple. You are the temple. Now you are incarnate. No, you are not God. Some of us like to think so. (laughs) But honestly, that's been the problem with humanity since Genesis 3. We try to place ourselves on the throne that we do not belong on. But you are the temple. You are the container, the carrier of the glory of God. And you are being sent out carrying the presence of God everywhere you go. You carry the glory of God everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, heaven and earth collides. 
everywhere you go. First, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, he dwells inside of us. So who is Jesus? Is he your savior? Who do you say that he is? Let me ask it a different way. What possesses you? What possesses you? If you do not know Jesus, if you've never invited him to take over your life, if you've never surrendered to him, the Bible is clear. The enemy possesses you. My friend said it, I've said it to you before, but my friend said it so eloquently. Without Jesus, this world is the only heaven you'll ever taste. But with Jesus, when you yield your life to him, this world is the only hell that you'll ever know. This is a sad but tragic truth. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, if he's not your friend, if you've not yielded and surrendered your life to him, the enemy possesses you. Why? Because Genesis 3, you were born into brokenness. You were born into darkness and you live in darkness. You were born into wreckage and you need rescue. You had no choice because of the first Adam choosing rebellion. You were born into brokenness. Your sinfulness has need of a savior. When you surrender to Jesus, you acknowledge your belief in who he is. You recognize that you have been bought with a price. That Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross to purchase your freedom. And if you surrender to him, you are now his possession. Don't forget John 20. I said we'd end with what we began with. But these things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the great I am. That by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. The team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in just a little bit of worship to respond. And as they come, I want to ask you these questions. Listen, who is Jesus to you? Don't miss him today. Don't miss him today. Don't find yourself missing him because he's here incarnate. He's here don't miss him today. He's with us. He is for you. He absolutely loves you. He is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs about you. Come on, somebody. Do you recognize that he is here and he's inviting you on this journey of life with him? It's not just about where you're going to go when you die. It's about today. He has purpose for you, man. He wants to take you into this adventure Anybody ever seen that movie, The Sixth Sense? Yeah. Creepy little kid. Straight up. Dr. Malcolm Crowe, Bruce Willis. The movie opens and someone shoots him. You're like, just paid eight bucks for that. That's terrible. Awesome. There he is sitting on a park bench. All's good. Movie redeemed. Bruce is still here, y'all. He's a child psychiatrist. He starts working with this kid, and this kid's got some serious issues. Finally, the kid opens up. He's in a hospital because he's been so just wrecked. And he says, I'm ready to tell you my secret now. So Bruce, character, Dr. Crow, says, okay, okay. He pulls in close, and the kid goes, I see dead people. And I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> I ain't into this kind of movie. He said, I see dead people. And then he said something so powerful, I'll never forget it, because a spiritual brick came out of the cinema movie screen and hit me in the face. He said, they only see what they want to see. They only hear what they want to hear. Some of them don't even know they're dead. And God said, that's a lot of my church. They only see what they want to see. They only hear what they want to hear. And some of them don't even know they're dead. Don't miss him today. Who do you say that he is? Is he sovereign? Is he your savior? Is he mighty? Is he powerful? Is he the great I am? Who is he to you? This morning, we're going to stand and we're going to sing about the name of Jesus. And I'm going to invite you. It's really not even me. It's, 
I believe the Lord Jesus inviting you this morning. If you've never given your life to this Jesus, that's what he asks. Some of you probably, you've grown up with an idea of church. Listen, he doesn't care right now about anything else in this very moment but you and him. He doesn't care if you give your time, if you don't know him. He doesn't care if you give money. He doesn't care if you give money to this church. He doesn't care if you were a zillionaire and wrote a check for a zillion dollars and said, go build the biggest building you can and plant as many churches as you can. If you do not know him this morning, all he cares about is this moment with him and you. I'm gonna invite you as he invites you into this life, eternal and abundant. And it starts with what the word says. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. Jesus, I need you to save me. Jesus, I want to give my life to you. Jesus, I yield and I surrender. Thank you for this that I just heard about the truth of who you are. Change me. Call me a child of God. Make me new. Is that your prayer this morning? It's that simple. Nothing magical about it. It's just you yielding your life. Saying it's not about me anymore. It's about you. I get it now. I've come to the end of myself. And I've seen the beginning of you. Let's stand and let's worship this morning, church. I'm going to invite you, if you've prayed that prayer this morning, on that connect card, there's a place. If you would, please do this. Would you say... I'm committing my life to Christ for the first time. It's on the very bottom. Or maybe you're saying, I'm interested in being baptized. Your time's coming. Maybe you're saying, I'm recommitting my life to the Lord Jesus this morning. Please let me know. Please let me know so that we can get with you and begin to journey with you. Let's sing together. And as we sing, here at Declaration, we, we, we come to the table of the Lord. Some call it Eucharist. Some call it communion, Lord's Supper. It's our privilege every week to come to the table of the Lord. We come humbly, we come thankfully, and we receive. I want you to hear it like this. He was whole and we were broken. He chose to become broken so that we could become whole. He was full and we were empty, but he emptied himself. He died on a cross and shed his blood to cover our sin and forgive us. He emptied himself so that we could be filled. This morning as the, the team comes, they're going to be here waiting to receive you. If you'd like to come, take the bread, the body of Christ, dip it into the juice. It represents the blood of Christ. Take, eat, and drink, and declare the Lord's death until he comes. If you need prayer this morning, we have prayer partners all around this side of this room, right over here. Please use them. Let's respond to the Lord. Let's sing. Let's worship. Let's come to the table, and then we'll go home in just a minute. Let's sing. Come on. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare him to the nations. For more podcasts and teachings, visit declaration.org slash podcast.